Find uh, Genesis 34 tonight. We are continuing our walk through the book of Genesis and looking tonight at the subject matter, the wrong place at the wrong time and wrong solutions. Wrong places, wrong times, wrong places, wrong time, and wrong solutions. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask for me, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor uh, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it for behold the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. 
And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, folks, I want you to remember God's word to Jacob back in chapter 31 and verse 3. Back in chapter 31 and verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. But as we saw last week, let's read again in chapter 33 and beginning in verse 15. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sayir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now folks, do you see a problem? Do you see a problem? Jacob, for some reason, does not journey back to Bethel. He stops in Shechem and he buys land there. Now, in chapter 35, God is once again going to say to Jacob, Go back to Bethel. But at this point, he's not. For some reason, after he and Esau parted, he stopped. He stopped short and didn't get all the way back. Now, we know that according to uh, chapter 33, the very end of the chapter, that he erected an altar. And of course, at an altar, he would have made sacrifice. But folks, sacrifice is not a substitute for obedience. Turn with me over to 1 Samuel 15 for a moment. 1 Samuel 15, and let's begin reading together in verse 10. 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 10. 
the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction." Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are a little, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amaleks to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. To obey is better than sacrifice. So back to our text. Jacob has stopped at Shechem. He's built an altar for sacrifice, but he has not obeyed God. To obey is better than sacrifice. He would have done well to have lived by that principle. Now let's see how that plays out in the narrative tonight. If you're taking notes from verses 1 to 7 of chapter 34, I want you to write down in the wrong places at the wrong times. In the wrong places at the wrong times. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now folks, who has set this whole unfortunate scenario up? Jacob. Again, Jacob was supposed to have his family back to Bethel. But he stopped at Shechem and has his family living there. And so his disobedience has left his family vulnerable. Now Dinah, while obviously not responsible for the horrible thing that happened to her... 
she acted nonetheless in a way that girls were not supposed to act. She went out alone. Dr. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis points out that girls of marriable marriage, blah, 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 I'm tongue tangled, marriable age were not allowed to wander out alone without a chaperone. And Dr. Hughes says that the Hebrew even allows for the reading that Dinah snuck out behind her mother Leah's back. Now again, in no way is Dr. Hughes laying responsibility at her feet. Only Shechem can be blamed for what he does. But there's a point here, like parents today. Think of parents today who say to their children, say their child goes to a party. And at that party, their child is not doing anything wrong that the other kids at the party are doing. And maybe the police get called. And some of the young people get arrested and locked up. What's the parent say to their child? You shouldn't have been there. You shouldn't have been there to begin with. And they don't blame their child for the crime if their child is not guilty, but they scold their child for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Folks, children need to see that boundaries and rules are not meant to reign on their parade. Boundaries are for safety. Dinah was in a place she shouldn't have been. Perhaps being the only child in her family who was a girl, she's wanting to go out and see how the girls of the land live. Maybe she's lonely. She wants to find her some female friends. In both cases, Jacob and Dinah, both of these individuals, we see that while they were not responsible for the evil done, they were both where they should not have been. Jacob has his family where his family should not have been. Secondly, Economic arrangements that are intended to heal hurts. Economic arrangements that are intended to heal hurts. Verse 8 says, Hamor spoke with them saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. And the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give you. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Now folks, again, this is something we see all the time in the world today, is it not? Somebody does something wrong and the next thing that you hear about is that the families are meeting together or maybe I should say lawyers representing the families are meeting together 
and they're trying to work out some type of economic arrangement that will make the whole thing go away. You have to wonder about Dinah in all of what takes place next. She's silent. Now, unfortunately, as a young woman in this culture back then, she would have had very little to say in this matter. Without a doubt, you you have to also wonder why Dinah's family would have even considered such an arrangement, regardless of the economic benefits. But they might have had in the back of their minds that now, now Dinah is going to be shunned by any other possible suitor who might come along in the future in her life. When it's found out that she's been defiled, according to the customs of the time, no one else will be interested in her in all likelihood. Which makes her the biggest loser in this scenario here. She's the one who suffers the most. Her family may be thinking, well... We'd, we'd like to kill this guy, really, but he's an important man in the area. And he and his family, they're, they're wealthy citizens in Shechem. And he greatly desires her to be his wife. And nobody else is ever going to want to marry her now. So in the long run, this might be the best situation for her. If she ever hopes to be a wife and a mother, this might be her only chance. But you still got to wonder what's going through her mind. Shechem's dad is promising that the whole land will be laid out before Jacob and his family. But folks, think about it. God had promised that anyway, right? But we see what Hamor is trying to do. He's trying to make this arrangement look as appealing as possible to Jacob's family. Folks, I want you to think about Satan's strategy in all of this. Later on, God's going to tell his people, do not intermarry with the people of the land. Do not take their daughters for your sons and do not give your daughters to their sons. Satan's smart, isn't he? He's evil, obviously, but he's smart. And he's been up to his evil plans for a long, long time. He's better at it than we are, right? He knows how to outsmart people. This arrangement of intermarrying, had it been carried out, think of the devastating consequences for Israel down the road that this arrangement would have had. Again, let's just remember Satan's smart. He's a deceiver and a liar and the father of lies. He's quite good at doing what he does. And oftentimes we just naively and stupidly go right along with him. 
We're so gullible. Well, thirdly, I want you to see that Jacob's sons practiced deception. Jacob's sons practiced deception. Beginning there in verse 13, going all the way down through verse 24. I won't read it again because we did before in the length of the passage. Jacob's sons have a plan up their sleeves. Now later on we find out that Simeon and Levi take the lead in this. They were the full siblings to Dinah. All of them were the the children of, of Jacob. And Leah, these Simeon and Levi and Dinah, they were the son, they were the, the children, the sons and the daughter of Jacob and Leah. And so it would appear, what I'm saying is that Dinah's full-blooded brothers are the ones taking the lead here, which makes sense. So what do they do? They propose circumstance, uh, circumcision. We know that the sons of Israel were were not the only people in the Middle East to ever circumcise their sons. Now, the Israelites did it for religious purposes. Why? Because God had instituted a covenant with Abraham, and the sign of the covenant was what? Circumcision. But again, it, it was not a, of an it was not an unheard of thing for even some of the pagans in the Middle East to be circumcised. Certain tribes in certain groups. And so the proposal here to Hamor and Shechem is not as outlandish as initially it might sound. Now, the sons of Jacob used their best sales job in convincing Hamor and Shechem to get their townspeople to buy into this. Just like Hamor made it sound so good if they could intermingle, Jacob's sons do the same thing in selling this arrangement with this one condition to it. Hamor and Shechem in turn go to their own townsmen. And they sell them on the plan. What do they do? They paint it as being a win-win situation for everybody. Now folks, isn't it interesting how the promise of material gain and good economics can be used to sell a situation? In America today... Politicians will sell anything to the public if the public thinks it's going to be good for their pocketbooks. And again, I want you to think about what the sons of Jacob are doing here. While circumcision was known a little in pagan cultures, that's not the reason that the Israelites were circumcised. Again, what I say a moment ago, they were circumcised as the sign of the covenant between them and God. And so what the sons of Jacob are doing is offering the sign of the covenant for grounds of the men of Shechem being accepted into their circles. And so without the element of faith or commitment to Jehovah God, they are basically 
prostituting the sign of the covenant for non-religious purposes. You with me? Exactly. 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 They are offering what God had given to them on religious grounds for a secular economic reason. Simply so everybody could live together in peace. In other words, just like Kathy's just indicated, they're stripping circumcision of its meaning to the covenant community. They're making light of it. Shame on them. Now think of the negative impact for future generations had they simply let this whole thing play out. You would have had the men of Shechem identifying with the men of Israel and yet having no faith commitment whatsoever to Jehovah God. It'd be similar in some ways to us today saying to the world, we want your money, we want your possessions. Come into the church, let us baptize you, and put you on our rolls. Now, you don't have to believe what we believe, but just so we can all be stronger together economically, we want you coming into our church But as far as what you believe, we don't care what you believe or if you really even believe anything at all. Just come and be a part of us as a humanitarian agreement. See how dangerous that could be and how ludicrous it could be? Yes, yes. Now, obviously the sons of Jacob do have something up their sleeve. So fourthly, I want you to see the massacre. The massacre. Verses 25 to 31. By all accounts, what Simeon and Levi did went beyond what it should have been. This is overkill. Literally, it's overkill. This is not justice by any reckoning. This is pure revenge, plain and simple. The law would would later regulate matters of justice, even when they were allowed to take an eye for an eye. Does anybody know what that was called in the Latin, an eye for an eye? Lex is the first word. You know the second word? Lex talionis. The law of the talon. In the Latin. Meaning an eye for an eye. And that was the code in some of the Old Testament laws. An eye for an eye. But the point is, even with that law, an eye for an eye... You could not go beyond what was prescribed. If somebody had injured your eye, what could you do? You could just injure their eye. You couldn't slit their throat to be graphic about it. 
It had to be some type of equal justice. And what does that show? It shows that God is a God of justice. If God takes vengeance, His vengeance is based on His perfectly righteous character. He doesn't allow His people, even in the Old Testament, to exact whatever type of revenge they want to exact against their enemies. He held them in check because he's a God of justice. Now, obviously, he's a God of mercy that comes to play in the New Testament where we see that we're even to love our, love our enemies and those who do something against you. Somebody slaps your, you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek. But again, in the Old Testament... With the eye for an eye, there was a limit to to what God was allowing His people to do. Because He is a just God and He does not want us taking revenge. This is why in the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 12 tells us that we are never to take vengeance ourselves. Why? Because our vengeance is based on pure anger and we want, to get, we want to get even at all cost. And we even want to go beyond getting, ang- ang- uh, getting even. But instead of trusting God to handle this whole situation in His way, they take matters into their own hands and they kill all of the men of the town. Then the other sons join in by plundering the town. We're not told exactly what became of all of the women and children except for the fact that they were taken captive. Were they later acclimated somehow into Jacob's family or into Israel in some way? We don't know. We're not told. But... All of the sons join with Simeon and Levi in plundering the town and taking even the women and children captive. Now folks, what these sons have done truly has endangered the whole entire family. And Jacob sees this. Jacob's fears are well-founded. He's not exaggerating. His fears of what the people, the men of the region could do to him and his family, those fears are well-founded. What Simon and Levi have done may in fact cause the men of the whole entire region to turn on Jacob's family and kill all of them. Remember, this is sort of a Wild West type ethic where people would exact their own revenge. And so now Jacob's family will need to pack up and get out of the region as quickly as possible. Simeon and Levi think they've been justified in doing what they've done because Shechem treated their sister like he did. But now because of what they've done, they might even be endangering Dinah's very life. Along with the lives of the whole entire family. 
Now, let me say, though, that Jacob doesn't really have the moral ground with his sons to scold them too harshly over what they've done. How could he scold them for their deception toward the men of Shechem when Jacob himself has been a deceiver? In fact, Jacob's name means heel grabber or deceiver. So the deceiver can't, he's not in a very good position to scold his sons too harshly. They've learned pretty well from their dad, hadn't they? What's also sad is the fact that Jacob seems more grieved over the loss of his family's safety in the land than he seems grieved over all of the sin that has taken place. Well, we come to the end of chapter 34, and like we've seen on previous occasions already in Genesis, no one in this chapter looks good. No one. There's no heroes in this chapter. There's no person that we can point to in this chapter and say they, they emerge as a model for us to follow. That's true. Yeah. Yep. So let's go over some lessons. Lesson number one, parents, and I could say tonight to this crowd, grandparents, Beware of not being at a place where God wants you. Beware of not being at a place or a place in life that God wants you. Your disobedience or the fact that you're out of God's will may have dire consequences for your entire family. Why Jacob has not gone back to Bethel is is just sheer disobedience on his part. Now folks, I want to resist making applications that don't really fit. But at the same time, let's let's think about some things. Let, Let me mention two scenarios that are quite common for parents today to do. And they think that it'll it'll have no consequences on their family. But it will. What about parents who see absolutely nothing wrong with regularly forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? Hebrews 10, we are commanded to meet together on the Lord's day corporately for worship. It's not a suggestion It's a commandment. Some parents seem to have no qualms whatsoever about considering that optional. And so what happens? The kids grow up thinking that church is optional. They grow up thinking that somehow or another it's okay if I just confess Christ with my lips and yet in my everyday life there doesn't need to be any kind of commitment whatsoever to Christ's body which is the church. 
And so they live their lives with that mindset that their parents have planted in them. And then they have kids. And it gets one step even further away from that. To where then their kids may never go to church under any circumstances but a funeral. And they may not even know what the gospel is. You see, generation after generation, they get a step further and then a step further even from that away from the gospel. To where finally, a couple of generations down the road, here's a family that's not even committed in any way to Christ's church and most of the family who doesn't even know Christ. And yet those parents, those earlier sets of parents who raised their kids thinking that church is just optional, it doesn't really matter. That's where it started. It's kind of like the song says, it's a slow fade. Think of another scenario with parents. What about parents who unjustly divorce their spouse and the family is forever divided after that the kids may never fully get over it even if they come out okay at the moment what if they go into their adult lives thinking that divorce is okay under any circumstances because hey after all mom and dad did it and so then marriage for them becomes a very light matter that has no spiritual significance or weight to it whatsoever. And they treat marriage flippantly. You see how that can end up harming in the long run? Parents, grandparents, it's important for you and me to be in the right spot with God in our own lives because guess what obedience to God can filter down in a positive way just like disobedience can filter down in a negative way obedience can filter down in a positive way what do we need to see what do we need to understand we need to understand just like John Dunn said on one occasion, no man is an island unto himself. What we do has consequences for others, good or bad. Second lesson, sexual sin often has tentacles of hurt that spread to many people. Not just those involved. What Shechem did was certainly not a private matter. It hurt Dinah. It hurt her family. It hurt his family. It ended up hurting his whole village. It poisoned Dinah's family, her siblings, and on and on it went. His sexual sin against Dinah had tentacles that reached into many people's lives. 
Third lesson. Money solutions don't fix sinful acts. Money solutions don't fix sinful acts. Only repentance and cleansing from God heals sin. Only repentance and cleansing from God heals sin. And then a last lesson. Do not take vengeance on your enemies. You will never get it right. You will never achieve the right balance. Leave it to God. Leave it to God.